So as I said, there is hope that maybe possibly there could be some sort of a settlement uh, in the offing for Sudan right now. The warring generals have agreed to send representatives to negotiations. Uh, it looks like maybe it'll be in Saudi Arabia. This is according to the United Nations uh, today. Uh, but meanwhile, as this is happening, there are all kinds of clashes in the capital once again. There's been a three-day extension of the ceasefire that hasn't really been all that much of a ceasefire. So um, things are really, really tense in that part of the world, and it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon, at least not uh, quickly. So the, the question now is, what do we do in terms of... Um, getting Canadians out. It looks like most of the efforts to do that have been suspended, not just by Canada, but much of the Western world that had been evacuating people. Joining us to talk about the situation is Nicholas Coglin, who is Canada's former top envoy to Sudan. He was Canada's first ambassador to South Sudan when it separated from that country. Um, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for having me on. Now, you've been through a very similar situation, right? South Sudan, 2013, conflict going on, people trying to be evacuated. Um, just tell us about what that was like and if there's any parallels to what we're seeing today. Well, certainly some parallels. You know, the, the actual military situation we had in South Sudan, the, uh, the principal, uh, the army basically split in two and, uh, on, on ethnic grounds. So you had uh, two branches of the army fighting each other in Juba, and the conflict then moved up country. Um, it moved far enough away from Juba, the capital, for the airport uh, to reopen and actually remain accessible under some threat. Um, so that's you know what one difference from um, what's been currently happening in Sudan. Uh, in Sudan, the main airport in Khartoum uh, remains closed and inaccessible, and uh, very definitely not safe to land on. And the secondary airfield that uh, Canada and other countries have been using, which is about 20 or 30 kilometers north of Khartoum, uh, also under threat, as you probably saw just a couple of days ago, a Turkish aircraft yeah. uh, was was shot at there. So really not safe. So I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm not surprised that the decision has been made to no longer use that airfield. Um, but uh, I, I would say one immediate uh, difference from uh, the case in South Sudan 10 years ago, Canada did not uh, send an aircraft. Um, uh, we depended entirely on the cooperation of allies, so that there has been one big difference this time around. There has been some criticism that we were slow and we were too dependent on allies at the beginning, but like you say, in the past we've relied entirely on allies, and that's not necessarily... Um, out of line. I mean, quite often that's how it works, right? There are negotiations that go on with the allied countries and they come up with a plan and maybe what happened wasn't negligence on the Canadian part. Maybe that was the plan, right? No, I, I think you, you put your finger right on it there. Um, these are, they are corporate efforts. They have to be um, because you have, in this case, one marginal small airfield. Uh, your number one priority is actually to minimize the number of aircraft on the ground on the time they're on the ground. And, of course, you have 15 or 20 nations want to get their people out, so you have to have a negotiation. And to be honest, you know, even in the case of Juba in South Sudan, uh, the Canadians we were, we were getting out, they weren't really too bothered about the, the flag on the table. 
out of the aircraft, whether it was American or Dutch or whatever. Right, yeah. Uh, they just want to get out. And so, you know, kudos to the diplomacy on this. I should say, uh, you know, that nearly broke down at one point. Um, in Britain, there's been a lot of pressure on the, on the British to get their people out. And that political pressure mounted to such a point that they actually flew their aircraft down without having cleared it with the controlling country on the ground that was doing air traffic control and everything. And that really, it could have been a very difficult uh, situation. Um, in, in, in fact, the Germans did let them in, but uh, it was really not the kind of thing you want to see happening in a cooperative operation. Um, Nicholas, as someone who's been there, spent time you know, dealing with a somewhat similar situation, where do you see this going? Like I say, there's talk that the warring generals will send representatives to some negotiations. Where do you think this might end up? Uh, I do fear that, you know, the, the potential for this to get worse is very, very major, and it could get very bad indeed. Uh, you know, the, the, the worst scenario, well, the initial scenario, which is, I, I guess is happening right now, is that basically you have, you know, two armies who are fighting for power. There is no ideological agenda here, and there's no religious agenda. Um, but as they struggle for power, and they seem to be fairly evenly matched, each will try to appeal to sectors of the civilian population on ethnic grounds or even on religious grounds to try and pull in civilians. And that's when it risks becoming a real civil war. And then beyond that, the secondary, but perhaps larger risk, is they will pull in their regional sponsors. Um, in this case, the, the, the army of South Sudan, called the SAP, the Sudan Armed Forces, their principal sponsor is Egypt uh, to the north. Uh, the, the second group, the Rapid Support Forces, they are, have historically been supported by United Arab Emirates, possibly Saudi Arabia. And as you've probably read, there is a potential uh, link with Wagner and indirectly to Russia yeah. there. So uh, this idea of a, a regional proxy conflict, I mean, that is very, very worrying. I think it's, it's, it's moderately encouraging, as you say, that, uh, uh, that maybe there's an agreement to send delegates to peace talks. Uh, but history shows that's going to take quite a while and an awful lot of diplomatic pressure to get this, get this going. You mentioned the people of Sudan and how they feel. But what's life like for them? I mean, it was a struggle for a lot of them before this conflict kicked off. What do you think they're going through right now? Yeah, you're right. It's, it's been a huge struggle. Um, for the last four or five years, the, the country has been in an economic tailspin. Um, so already there was a massive effort going on from the international community getting aid in. And now it's, it's relatively unusual for, uh, for fighting to break out first in the capital and is most intense in the capital. And in some ways, it's most difficult in Khartoum because obviously, you know, this is a city of seven or eight million people. Yeah. The electricity is down half the time. Um, that means no internet, no generators. Uh, it's average 35 degrees Celsius, by the way. Um, uh, you can't get around because there's, there's no fuel. Uh, most of the vehicles have, have left on evacuations. Um, and so it is really, really tough in Khartoum right now. And, you know, I think as soon as we get some kind of lessening of the fighting, the number one priority is actually going to be to get some aid, some yes. assistance into the capital. Yeah, they're already talking about that, the fact that that is, it's dire. I mean, the need there is absolutely dire already. And, and like you say, it's just too risky to bring in a lot of the efforts that they want to do. So we'll continue to follow it along. And uh, I really appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for being here.